Hello everybody, welcome to this special edition of Coffee Time with Byron. I am your host, Byron. God, I can't believe it, but it's finally here. Episode number 100, after long, long, long searching for 100, I wanted to be special, I did. I found my guest, former UFC fighter, Nate the Rock Corey. Thank you for joining me. We are live on YouTube at Coffee Time. Uh, also available next day on all podcasting apps, Google, Spotify, iTunes, and now Amazon Amazon Music. So if you got Alexa, you can say Coffee Time with Byron and it'll play it. So it's an accomplishment. So, but I want to say thank you again, Nate, for joining us. I appreciate it for episode 100. And how are you tonight in all this? Uh, I'm good. The kids are running around like their hair's on fire, and it's it's a great night. Yeah, so I'm I'm yeah ready to go. Let's do this. So I gotta ask you first. Uh, obviously, you came into the UFC. You got the nickname Rock for a reason. Uh, Want to tell the audience how you how they came up with that name for you, or the Rock? <laughs> well, the story is really not all that dramatic. Uh, in the process of becoming a fighter, I was working in construction. I was working at a sign shop. I became a, a journeyman sign hanger. I was a shop foreman. So I was a class B electrician. I was a certified crane operator, certified mm-hmm. welder, all of these things. And I was training and fighting on the weekends every once in a while. And in that process, I needed supplements to help you know, keep the, the mechanism working. And I got introduced to this one company and started buying directly from them. And I was getting supplements at about 25% of the cost on the shelves in the stores. Mm-hmm. So I just started selling supplements. I could double my money and the people I'm selling to would be still getting them for half off. So I just started calling it rock quarry supplements and that's what kind of stuck. And then, Randy Couture kind of made it really solid during the Ultimate yeah. Fighter when he says, right. Nate has really lived up to his name, Rock Quarry. He's been the bedrock of this team, yada, yada, yada. So that was it. Maybe I should have gone with Stone Quarry or – although <clears throat> I did have quite a few nicknames throughout my career. The first nickname I was given by my original coach, who just beat the hell out of me, mm-hmm. called me – the wooden bleeding Indian because I had the footwork of a wooden Indian statue and I bled like crazy. But my favorite nickname was given to me by a former teammate who has since passed away. Mm. I was riding on a, an Indian reservation still in in the small shows. Mm. And I knocked this guy out with a, a right hand, left hand, just a straight two, one. And I believe it was the left when I hit him in the forehead. Mm -hmm. I hit him so hard, his forehead burst open. And what we call a compression cut. Mm -hmm. Most cuts are kind of slices. They'll bleed open. And compression cuts, when you hit someone so hard, that it just kind of bursts. And the cut isn't straight. It looks like a jagged canyon. Right. So my training partner at the time, Greggy Piper, comes up to me and goes, man, that was so pretty. I'm going to call you the artist formerly known as Rock. (laughs) So that was my favorite nickname of all time, the artist formerly known as Rock. See, you should have been you should have gone with that one instead. 
<laughs> That's go. a little bit harder to put on the posters, but yeah, I'm with you. So uh, you were part of three teams, um, Straight Blast Gym until 99, Team Quest, which I believe was Randy Couture, you were his teammate, correct? Yes. And then Next Level MMA after you left Team Quest for two years before you retired. Out of all those three gyms that I mentioned in teams, what did you learn the most out of them and who taught you the most out of that? Because obviously, I'm going to guess obviously Team Quest because of the legend, Landy Couture. Well, boy, that's this is an interesting question. It's one I've never been asked before, so kudos to you. Thank you. Uh, you did some of your research. Well done. <laughs> I would have to say each team delivered what I needed at that time. And there came to be a time when they no longer, I, I was no longer getting necessarily what I needed. Not saying it was necessarily a bad gym. It just wasn't the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. With Straight Blast Gym, that was the first gym that I trained at. I walked in the doors at 24 years of age, no MMA, no, no real martial arts or sports experience whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I just seen the UFC on TV and I said, I'm going to try this out. <clears throat> and of course, every young man thinks that they can fight. Generally, people have this inflated ego about themselves. It right. makes them think that they can fight anyone at any time. Right. So I go into this gym. I do an hour and a half of kickboxing, an hour and a half of jujitsu. And I get beat up so badly that I'm sick for three days afterwards. And it was just, it was so eye-opening to me <clears throat> that people that I outweighed by 60 pounds mm -hmm. could choke me completely unconscious, could tap me into submission. Mm -hmm. But as I was leaving the gym, I said, this needs to change. I'm going to keep coming back here until I can beat every one of your asses. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I just kept coming back over and over again. And I, I had that drive. In retrospect... The head coach there was Matt Thornton, and he was one of the coaches that wants to be a gym superstar. Mm -hmm. He had he had a difficulty with myself and others as well, going beyond that little world. He wanted to be the star of everything, and my parting with that gym came. I think it was my sixth fight. I fought Mike Whitehead who eventually made it to the UFC. I think he was on season two of The Ultimate Fighter. Very tough guy. Mm -hmm. I had no idea who he was at the time. He was right. ranked third in the country for Greco-Roman. Uh, <clears throat> I had just knocked out his one of his training partners. The story I just told about the 2-1, just like two weeks before this fight. Yeah. So he knows who I am. I have no idea who he is. We're fighting main event at a small... Uh, arena here in Portland, the Roseland Theater. The referee looks at him and says, are you ready? He says, yeah, and runs across the ring. The referee looks at me and says, are you ready? And Mike's now in my face. Grabs me in the corner, slams me down. <clears throat> we fought for roughly 27 minutes mm -hmm. straight. About 22 minutes straight, five-minute overtime. It was supposed to be a 15-minute first round. How they came up with that, I have no idea. <laughs> But the timekeeper, the uh, judges, the referee were all chosen out of the crowd. These were people that bought tickets, right. came to watch the show. Right. And the promoter said, hey, buddy, can you can you wear this referee's uniform? You're a medium. That's the shirt that we have. 
And so it was the most ri- ridiculous thing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But at the end of that fight, I'm in my corner and I look at Matt Thornton and I say, look, man, I just proved to you, you can't make me any tougher. Mm-hmm. I will fight till I have nothing left. I just fought for 27 minutes. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, we'll work on your skills to make you a better fighter. I was like, awesome. That's what I want, man. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to be a punching bag. Right, right. Six days later, he and I are training one-on-one on a Friday night. And he's, I think he's around six foot eight. Yeah. And he weighed, his weight range between 220, 260, 285, whatever at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was around 215 at the time. And I have T-Rex arms, 72 and a half inch reach. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm always constantly having to work on slipping on the outside, trying to come to the inside so I can land my shots. Right. So I'm staying out at the end of his punches to get inside, and he just starts teeing off on me. Now, I had gone out and realized at this point that you don't actually want to damage your training partners in practice if you're an athlete. Right. You want to do that on your own time. You want to be a gym tough guy. So be it. Right. But for me, I'm not fighting to win in the gym. I'm fighting to win in the cage or in the ring at an event. Right. Yeah. And Thornton is just teeing off on me, blasting me with these shots. I had purchased 20 ounce boxing gloves, sparring gloves, big pillow gloves. Mm -hmm. So when I hit my training partners, I wouldn't hurt them. I could still go through the motions and throw hard shots, but without doing a lot of damage. Right. Thornton was, was famous for wearing eight ounce bag gloves, 10 ounce bag gloves, maybe 12s. If you were lucky Mm -hmm. gloves that were designed to protect your hand, not your training partner. So he's teeing off on me and I throw a big overhand, right? The lands, but I've got my 20 ounce pillows and I shove them up against the wall. And I say, what the fuck is your problem, man? I'm actually fighting in a ring in front of people. Right. I'm trying to make something of myself and see how far I can go in this sport. And he looked at me and he said, well, see, the problem with you is you're no good and you never will be. Oh, I'm just using you to make myself better. Brutal. And at that point, I should have probably thanked him and said, thank you for really exposing to me who you are as a man right and as a coach yeah because now that i know that my career is not a priority for you right it's time for me to go someplace else even though it should have been yeah that's right that's the main point i'm I'm, I'm the most loyal guy around so for the next from the ultimate fighter to my 10 fights in the ufc every fight would have been Huge thank you to Straight Blast Gym and everything I learned from that gym. Even though I've had to move on, it was such a great place to start. Well, no, that that all went away after that. And so I went to uh, Couture, who I'd been training with off and on. <clears throat> he actually came into Straight Blast Gym mm-hmm. when I'd been training for about a year or something. Mm-hmm. And it was just incredible for me to see a true athlete who could do a five-minute round no nonstop. And we still could rotate. go. And still could we, yeah, go we, if he wanted to. Yeah, we could we could rotate a fresh guy in on him every minute, right. and he'd just run right through us. Right. And now I'm realizing this guy knows what it takes to compete. He's an athlete. So I go up and I meet with Randy, and he just says, "Well, that's that's bullshit. I'm sorry that happened. You're always welcome here." Yeah. So I started training with Randy. Well. <clears throat> They didn't really have a competition team. It was just Randy, Dan Henderson, and Matt Linland. 
and they were kind of putting together a gym to kind of pay the bills, have them extra income. Right. But the main focus was just on them and their fights. Right. So one Sunday morning, I said, hey, Randy, I want to fight for you here at Team Quest. And he says, well, we don't really have a fight team. And I said, well, you should put one together, and I want to be on it. And he said, oh, okay, well, let me talk to the guys. So he went and talked to Danny and, and Lynn Lind and Robert Fowles had come over to Team Quest from Straight Blast Gym, and now he was kind of running the program there as one of the coaches and, and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and that was the start of the, the Team Quest program, the amateur and pro team that was other than Lindy and Danny and Brandy. And I trained with them for quite a few years. <clears throat> uh, when I was on the Ultimate Fighter, I was with Team Quest, and, th- and that was an interesting story in as- of itself. That so this is 2002. I had just quit my job in construction. I decided I was going to try something else, see if I right. could make this make make a living somehow of this fighting, right. which was not going to be possible, quite frankly, because the UFC put on five shows a year. There was no real market for this, right? But I had the, the, the bravery of ignorance and figured I'd just go ahead and give it a shot. Well, in the same year, my father died. Ooh, and I spent, the last, I spent the last three weeks of his life with him kind of preparing for the passing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I, I had been disowned by my family through – I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. Right. I left the organization, decided right. to go out on my own. Right. And in that case – my parents disowned me then, but I came back to help my father and my mother right. through this difficult time. Right. Well, there came a point where I said to my mother, I, I've done everything that I can do. Now I've contracted to take a fight back in Richmond, Virginia. So I need to go do that. And so I said goodbye to my father. I flew out to Richmond. I got word that my father had just passed away. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I took out all of that emotion, all of the frustration that I had over these past few weeks on my opponent. And he was a tough guy, uh, four inches taller than me, three times as many fights. And I snapped his arm in the first round, beat him up standing, and then went down to the ground, uh, kicked him a couple times, went for a triangle. He left his arm behind, and I I harvested it. Mm -hmm. And after that, then I ran around the ring, just letting the emotion flow out of me. And this short little guy comes up and he says, hey, I'm Joe Silva, the matchmaker for the UFC. I've got my eye on you. And so when they were casting for the Ultimate Fighter, they called me and said, we want you to come down and and try out for the show. And I was about out of the sport, kind of like Forrest Griffin. There was no money to be made. There was no future in MMA. So we got to figure out something. Not that there's much more now these days, but at least there's more shows. And so I, I end up on the Ultimate Fighter, and while I get injured on the show, I, I maintain my relationship with the UFC. I fight for them ten times, and things were going fairly good with Team Quest uh, when the Ultimate Fighter was airing. Uh, Couture moved down to Las Vegas, so he kind of completely separated his relationship from Team Quest up right. in Portland. I remember and that. Went down to start Vegas. His own. Yeah, to start his own, yeah. And so now, it, gyms generally have the personality of the most dominant fighter or coach in that gym. And you can have phenomenal coaches who understand the vision of the team, or you can have just real assholes who want to make sure that they're the hero and everybody else is in competition with them in the practice room. Right. Well, that that power went from Randy to Linland. 
And to sum up Linland, <clears throat> there was one practice where Scotty Smith came up and Scott Smith, who I, I think made it to a championship in strike force, real tough guy. Uh, he's sparring with Linland and Linland decides that he's going too hard and beats the hell out of him in such a manner that it's, it's, it's shocking. Uh, Scotty Smith had kind of blown his wad. He was kind of gassed up. He's leaning up against the wall and, mm-hmm. and Linland knees him in the solar plexus, drops him. Soccer kicks him twice in the ribs Ooh. and then head stomps him Ooh. twice. Head stomps him at the base of the skull, stomps his face into the mat. Ooh. And I'm sitting there watching this whole thing. Ouch. And I'm I'm just in shock of I'm looking around thinking, geez, somebody should say something. Then yeah. I realize, God damn it, it's me. I'm the guy that has to say something. Yeah, why why didn't nobody step up? What was the whole point in Everybody that? Everybody else there was just were younger guys. Jeez. That were that's just brutal. The, the that's more like that's up. more like street fight there. That can get it, you. It could have killed him. Could have broken yeah. his neck. So I walk up to him. I'm like, "Hey, Matt, I, I think he's had enough. Let's call it around." And he starts yelling at me, like, "Do you see how hard he was going?" I'm like, uh, "Yeah, man, I, I saw the whole thing. Damn. He was throwing some hard punches. I, yeah. I don't think this was the appropriate right it's, response." Right over to Scotty Smith. Right. And Scotty looks up at me with blood pouring out of his face. His nose is broken, and he says, "What did I do?" It's like, "Yeah, man, I saw the whole thing." You were going hard with Matt the same way that you were going hard with me this entire week. It was not out of out of bounds, nothing like that. <clears throat> so that was kind of the that was kind of the new person that was now running things at Team Quest. And at every practice that that Linland or Fallis wasn't there, the guys would just sit around and complain about how practice was being run. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going to be coming. They they just had all sorts of complaints. And I'm not that guy. I don't complain behind somebody's back. I try very hard not to say anything behind somebody's back. I wouldn't say to their face. Right. And so I said to them, well, guys, I'll, I'll go talk to them. I'll, I'll go represent the team and we'll see what we can do because this, this isn't going to sustain itself. We need to do something. And I'd seen gyms over the years make a big flash when they show up. Yeah. And then over time, they don't change. They don't grow with the sport. The Gracies. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu wins at everything. Yep. Well, until people learn how to defend the takedown, and then Matt Hughes will finish right. one of the greatest. And another one, games. too. When Ken Shamrock left first for WWE or WWF, whatever it is nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's now WWE, but it's still the same thing. Look what happened there. His fires were never the same after yep. he left for there. He just gave up on those fighters and... You never really hear from that gym no more. Yeah, so I went to Linlin and Fallis and I said, look, the, the entire team is complaining about things here. And yeah. they would like some actual coaches that are experts in these fields. And I was told flat out, we're not going to hire a boxing coach, a kickboxing coach, a jiu-jitsu coach, a conditioning coach. We're an MMA gym. We don't need any of those things. Right. And I said, well, okay. I, I don't feel like I can reach the best of my ability without those coaches. And I made all sorts of, uh, I went in there with, this is what we need. And at the end of it, I was like, this is what we'll settle for. Mm -hmm. Just allow me to take a discount as I'm paying these other coaches from the 15% that I'm paying team quest of my gross income. Right. And the other fighters were paying 20%. So $1 out of every five was going to team quest. And what we were getting was just hard sparring. 
that's it. So I went to the guys and I said, look, we can go to any gym here in town and say, hey, we're the former Team Quest Fight Club. We'd like to train here. We'll save the, that 20%, reinvest it in ourselves and our coaches, and we'll see where we go. Right. And and pretty much every single fighter said, oh, no, we, we didn't realize you were serious. We're fine. I said, cool. Well, good luck, guys. I'm out. <clears throat> and so I saw a lot of careers that could have been just phenomenal, just fate, mm. because they didn't have the coaches. They didn't have somebody that cared about them. Right. I right. saw... There was a great fighter, Ryan Schultz, in his first MMA fight. Now, he was a, a great wrestler. <clears throat> in his first MMA fight, he went up against a guy who had something like 30 or 40 fights. Mm -hmm. And he just got picked apart. The guy he was fighting wasn't great, but he was tough enough that he just picked Schultzy apart to where Schultz couldn't even walk for several days after that. And this was a fight that Matt Linland had lined up for him in his first MMA fight. And I'm sitting there thinking, if this is what Linland is going to do for a friend of his that he knows from, from wrestling, what is he going to do for the rest of us? Right. And they had brought in some high-priced lawyer that was going to negotiate the contracts and all this and that and be our manager. I was like, wait a minute. So this guy's getting paid an insane amount of money per hour. You're going to be actively looking for guys to fight for $500. You're going to be looking for a $300 sponsorship for these guys. And his response was, well, no, I'm not going to be really proactive. I'm going to be reactive. If pride calls and they want Matt Linland to fight for the title, and he's not available. Well, then I'll, I'll pass it down to one of you guys. I was like, wait a minute. <clears throat> so pride, one of the biggest organizations in the world, want one of the top 10 middleweights in the world to go fight for their world title and he's not available but they're going to settle on Joe Schmo over here at 185 pounds that yeah. has a record of 3 and 3 and 2 yeah I, I i just don't buy it right yeah and i don't blame and, him and i and sure enough i i was right uh, the lawyer was working directly for Matt. He wasn't working for any of the other fighters. He was getting paid from the dues that the fighters were paying. They didn't have any of the coaches. Mm -hmm. And so when's the last time you saw a Team Quest fighter on the big stage? Right. right. Never. Never, yeah. They're, they're, they're gone. They're gone. all gone. Yeah, everybody's gone. Yeah. When was the last time you saw a Team Quest fighter come from nothing, sign up to Team Quest, and win a championship? Never. Not never. since you not not it not since happened. you not since you guys originally started when you like you said you had Couture, yeah. When Linlin went for well, a title, Linlin went well, for a title, but they didn't come didn't from happen. nothing, right? So right, you look right. at a, look at a Matt Hume or a Greg Jackson or a Henzo Gracie. These are coaches who find somebody, right? And they say you're special, right? You're going to be a champion, and they create that champion. With us, there was no, and, and this is what's funny. Everybody thinks that because I came from Team Quest, I have to be this great wrestler. There was no wrestling class. Right. The takedowns are terrible because every time I shot a takedown on Couture, Linlin, Henderson, Chael, any of those guys, I would get punished. There was no growth. They took what you did good already, maybe made you better at that, and the stuff it's, that you didn't do well, it was never really discussed. It's funny you say that because I remember your Team Quest guys – and yeah, you like you said, you had trouble. I could see I could see that in all your guys' fights. Besides the guys that could actually wrestle, 
the ones who couldn't had problems with the guys that could. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And so it became time to, to leave Team Quest and say goodbye to them. And a lot of it was tough because I had been friends with a lot of the guys. I cornered a lot of them. They'd been there for me as well. It's, it becomes a family. But at the same time, it's a business as well. Right. And that's what I see all too often with gyms. They blur the lines of family and business. When you ask, uh, hey, can you just corner me for this? Or, you know, I, I really don't have money to, to, to cut you your full amount here. Can you cut me a deal? Sorry, man, this is a business. If we do that for you, we'd have to do it for everybody. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, by the way, can you go corner this guy? Uh, we need you to drive five hours and stay the night in a really crappy hotel. Well, can you pay me like a hundred bucks for it? Dude, what, what, don't you want your teammate to win? Don't, don't you want to help out? Come on, I can't believe you'd be so selfish. Well, you're taking 20% of his purse and doing nothing. And I ask for a small compensation so I'm not losing money for one of your athletes to succeed, and I'm called selfish. Okay. So throughout all this, there was one guy that I knew at Team Quest by the name of Greg Thompson. He was mm -hmm. running the amateur team, mm -hmm. and he had a lot of concerns the same way that I did. And he, he called me that night that I left, and he said, I don't know what's really going on, but I, I, I don't know why you left Team Quest, but I wish you the best. And I said, don't lie to yourself. They kicked me out. They're using me as an example to keep everybody else in line and to keep them from complaining. Yeah. I said, I'm again, I'm just not that guy. I stand up for myself. I stand up for what I believe is right. Right. And so I'm on my own now. And he said, well, if there's anything you need, let me know. I'd be happy to help. And I said, you know, I've already got the coaches. I've been paying these guys out of my own pocket, my jujitsu coach, my boxing coach, my conditioning coach. I just need some sparring partners. And so twice a week, Greg Thompson showed up and sparred with me. And it was brutal for him because I'm getting ready for fights that are predicting the future of my life. And he's he's, he's been coaching the amateur team. So there was some, some rough practices for him. But we made it through. Uh, I, I fought six times with Greg Thompson in my corner. I only fought four times in the UFC with Team Quest. So I, I did more after leaving Team Quest than I, I did there. And it all comes down to you know, it's just the, the right team, the right people at the time. And to do my best and, and make something happen. And that's what it came down to. Now... Obviously, you said you had a relationship with Katora. Obviously, he was your sparring partner for years in Quest. Uh, when he went to go down to start his own, uh, start his own company, uh, obviously Extreme Katora, which is still famous to this day. I don't know if they're still producing fighters, but because uh, I haven't seen the sport in a while, because I don't have the money to watch it on uh, ESPN Plus. But when you guys were close. Did he ever stay? Did he ever? Because I'm sure he knew you were eventually going to leave Team Quest. So that's why he left. Because I'm pretty sure he knew how it was going to be. Uh, did he ever come in contact with you, or were you ever close with him to get him to maybe have you go down to his gym and work out with him and be a part of his team? Well, moving to Vegas and now around this time, I got custody of my older daughter. Oh, okay. And so it was something that I could just pick up and go. And gotcha. it's, it's, it's 
man, I can't tell you how hard it is to be a single father, be a professional athlete and try to take care of your children on your own. Gotcha. But I made her my priority. And I would always say to myself, you know, on my deathbed, what do I want to look back at? The, the fighter that I was or the father that I was. And so making her the priority, getting her to come and live with me, go to school out of my house. And that meant <clears throat> I'm up at 6.30, 7 a.m., getting her fed and dressed and off to school. Then I've got my morning practice. And then I've got to be home when she gets home from school, take care of her, feed her dinner, all that. I've got my afternoon or my evening practice. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, I honestly, I don't know how we did it because it's just there was one day where I was getting so overtrained and I was so exhausted. I told her I need to go lay down for a minute and I passed out. Well, of course, 15 minutes later, she's knocking on the door. Daddy, I'm hungry. I wake up and I don't even know where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I'm just completely out of it. <clears throat> and so at the the end of my last fight in, in 2012, so my daughter's around 10 at that time, and I took a beating from Jorge Rivera, just landed two big right hands, shattered the left side of my face. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, if I'm going to continue on this journey, I need to go to a better camp. I need to get with some more coaches and the guys that I had were great, but it was very spread out. Right. I had my conditioning coach over here, my kickboxing coach over here, my boxing coach, my jujitsu coach, my MMA coach, and none of them were really working in unison. So it was, it was very difficult. I didn't have like, like my sparring partner for the Jorge Rivera fight was a Southpaw wrestler, totally opposite of everything that Jorge is. Right. <laughs> so, I said, if I'm going to continue on with this sport, I'm going to have to leave at least for three months at a time every time I sign a fight. Right. And I can't do that as a single father. So, again, I made the decision to this is what's most important. And I don't blame take care of my little I would have done the same. Now that I have two of my own, I would have done the same as you did. That would have been more important than anything. <laughs> I know. Well, and it's, know. it's amazing how, how many people don't choose that pathway right but it's just too difficult there's no glory they right. there it, it just doesn't feel good they'd rather be out partying drinking having fun instead of taking care of their family raising their kids and so the cycle continues because now those kids grow up thinking well my parents never really prioritized me that's how i should be with my kids and so things get worse and worse right whereas with me my little girl was the priority my two kids now my my babies are the priority now right and I don't blame you. Same with same with mine. Exactly. I wouldn't. I couldn't do anything without them. So you're you're right. And I don't blame you on that. Um, so when I first, even though I knew about the sport, I couldn't watch it. My mom wouldn't let me watch it because it was too violent. I'm in. I'm a '90s kid. I was born in '91. So I was only two years old when it first came out. So I was only allowed to watch it. Go figure. When the first Ultimate Fighter came out, because that's when it started being big. So I watched that. I watched guys like you, Josh Koscheck, uh, Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner, those guys. So tell me about that, because I saw the whole series. Take us through that whole experience, meeting Dana White for the first time, living in that house with those guys, and then doing the fights. 
that's a lot of hormones in that house. It was hard to contain them all. So how did you guys manage that? And I'm sure you made some good friends too out of that, being in that house for a little bit that you were. It was brutal. And it's, we had no idea what we were in for. We, didn't, we weren't big fans of reality shows. We were just guys who wanted to fight and see how good we could be. And now we had this opportunity on the ultimate fighter to test ourselves. Yeah. But you're locked up in this house, house with 16 fighters, eight middleweights, eight light heavyweights, the testosterone, the egos are out of control. Exactly. Guys have fought each other before. And there was all sorts of twists. So you never knew what was going to happen. You could be best friends with somebody. And then the next day, the, the producers are saying, well, you guys are going to fight in three days. So you have to get your mind right for that. <clears throat> and at the start of it, I felt like everybody kind of had this facade on. They were bringing their, their best foot forward. And then as the weeks dragged on, it began to expose who they were inside. Mm-hmm. I stayed pretty much the same throughout. Yeah. It was like, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Yep to work, to fight, to provide a future for my little girl. Yep. That's what I'm going to do. I don't want anything else to get in my way. In fact, when my team wanted me to be the team captain, I was like, God damn, I don't want to do that. I want to focus on myself, not on you idiots. Right. <laughs> right. That's what they chose. So <laughs> it was, it was, it was difficult. It was incredible. And we got to be a part of something huge. I'm, I'm on the very first fight night poster. That's pretty awesome for a guy who started training at 24, who was raised in a cult, who never did sports until he was a, an adult. That's something pretty awesome to look back on. And being in the UFC 10 times, fighting for the world title, even though it didn't go my way, that's some pretty awesome memories to look back on and some cool things to say that I've done and been a part of. Yeah. So tell tell what, when did you actually get to hold uh, get the did you, before you get to go, go into the house? Is that when you got to first meet Dana White? And, or how how did that work? Like I know during fights when you guys had to fight, he was obviously there. But did you guys ever personally get to talk to him besides what he actually showed at the beginning of the show by saying <laughs> you're talking like he's some important guy and not just a promoter. I know. He, well, he. I mean, he he comes across that because that's how he that's how he came across the show. So I mean, he didn't seem like a promoter. Every, everybody's <laughs> just everybody. I knew Dana from around the way. I'd been cornering Couture. Uh, it's we've been training partners for so long. He cornered me in my very first fight at 26. Mm-hmm. So I've been training with him since I was 25, 26 years old. Uh, and then I cornered him for his rematch against Pedro Hizzo. Mm-hmm. And then cornered him for several fights after that. Cornered Evan Tanner, uh, a, a bunch of guys that had made it to the big show. So I, I knew Dana from around the way, knew of him, had interacted with him a little bit. And to me, he was just another promoter. Promoters always have their angle. They're trying to get as much money as they possibly can. They're trying to put on the best shows, and that's it. <clears throat> So everything else was just, yeah, I, I'm here to do my job and you're here to do yours. Now, unfortunately, during the show, you got injured and your fellow teammate, Chris Lieberman, took your spot to face Koscheck. Now, tell us about that. and How, how much did that hurt you? Did you think your MMA, was, MMA, sorry, MMA career was over after that? Or did you think you'd have a shot coming back from injury, you know, to show yourself? 
Well, it was such an unknown being on that show. They hadn't even sold it to a network at that point. Right. Because I'm at, at the end of filming, I'm calling them and saying, hey, when is this going to air? And they said, we have no idea. We right. haven't even got anybody that's picked it up yet. Right. So it really, I, I really had no idea how this was going to go. I do know right after my ankle was was broken, hyperextended, I'm now hopping out to the van that's going to take me to the hospital. And of course, they stick a camera in my face and start asking me all sorts of questions. Right. And my response is, I know this is great TV for you, but this is my life. This is my entire future here that's hanging in the balance. So excuse me if I don't feel like laughing and joking around with you at this point, because this is really serious for me. So you, when you come back from injury, you make your debut at the ultimate finale, which was obviously they had the TV deal done, Spike TV, which became their first major TV gig. Uh, and you fight Ladoon Sincade. Hopefully I said the name right. Sorry if I didn't. Ladoon Sincade. Yes, yes. Suck. Yes, there you go. By TKO. Take us through your first... UFC fight and I I unfortunately couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. I was working at the time, but I couldn't watch it. So take us through that fight and how you managed to TK help TKO him. Well, nobody could watch it because they put us on the dark card on on the undercard that wasn't aired on TV, oh, which really? upset me greatly because oh, all sixteen brutal. of us fought that night. So we had. Eight fights, 16 guys fighting, and only four of them were aired. Kenny Shucks. and Diego and Stefan and Forrest. A point that I made to a Spike executive that I was very unhappy about, which I probably shouldn't have done. I should have said, hey, it would be a great idea. Air our fights. Yeah. Instead, I said, why the fuck is it my fights on TV? <laughs> but Shucks. I was hoping to see it. <laughs> it was, uh, and it's now on UFC.com or whatever. But... Uh, the fight went really well for me. I was concerned. Uh, really, I just wanted to, to go out there and put on a good show and show everybody why I was there in the first place. Loden had fought Bobby Southworth at light heavyweight. They went into the second round. My goal was to beat Loden faster than Bobby had beat him, and that's what I did. Uh, for once in my career, I had reach on somebody, and having reach on someone is a huge advantage. Every time he'd step in, I'd, I'd pop him. And he threw a flurry, I covered, I'd move off, and once I got my combination going and landed on him, Big John stepped in pretty quickly and called off the fight. And <clears throat> Loden has since passed away, which is which is a difficult thing to think about. Somebody that I, I stepped in the cage right. with is now gone. But yeah. yeah, it's it's a part of life and a part of the journey and I'm honored that I was able to step in there with him. My first words to him after the fight were I'm sorry it had to be you. And, and I meant it. I'm sorry he had to be the guy, but this is my life. I'm fighting for my little girl, and this right. is going to provide for our future. So it is what it is. Now, you were, like you said, you were a part of that card, which I, I, I've i seen a lot of UFC fights. And I know this is tough for me to say, but a lot of people agree with me on this. You were there and witnessed it. The Do you, do you agree, like me and everybody out, a lot of people out there, that the Stephen Bonner fight and Forrest Griffin fight at that at that fin finale that led them to both having a contract was the best fight 
ever because I literally saw them just like you did. You witnessed it in person. Beat the living hell out of each other. <laughs> you were there. Tell us about tell us about that fight. You saw it in person. How how was that fight? Do you think that was the best fight? Well, ever? the best fight ever is such a subjective thing. From a technique standpoint, no, it wasn't. It was it was a brawl. Uh, they weren't crisply throwing jabs and crosses and shooting takedowns. They were standing toe-to-toe slugging each other out. So it really kind of depends on your definition of what the best fight is. It could be one of those most monumental fights in UFC history for sure. That could be argued. But here's the thing even with that. When it came to this fight for the first time, and, and this was not the first time that an MMA fight was aired on TV. It had been done before. Right. Nobody cared. No, right. Nobody knew what was going on. Exactly, yeah. But for the first time, you had, what, 12 weeks to get to know these fighters, mm-hmm. to see what their journey was all about, what they were fighting for, to get to know the sport. If you go up to anybody and say, hey, uh, what belts did Muhammad Ali fight for? Nobody's, nobody knows. Yeah, nobody knows. Yeah. What about Frazier? You know, these are the two world champions. What what belts would they hold? Right. Nobody has any clue what belts they had. But do you have an opinion on Ali? What do you think of Frazier? Right. Oh my God. So Ali, man, he really stood up for what he was fighting for. He was against the war. He wasn't gonna go and as he said, fly across on the other side of the world, killed somebody that never called him a bad word. And Frazier, well, he was the working class hero who was just grinding out and tough as nails. They have an opinion about them because they know them. Nobody cares about the belts. So for the first time, you got to know Forrest Griffin. You got to know Stefan Bonner, Diego Sanchez, Kenny Florian, all the guys in the house. You got to know them, know their motivations and root for or against them. If you take all of that away and you just on a random Thursday night have Stefan and Force in a cage, does it get that many eyes? I don't think so. Because right. nobody cares about guys fighting for, for an unknown cause, two guys that they don't know. Right. But you add that combination of the ultimate fighter and then two guys that are willing to put it all on the line and, and take who knows how many years off the their end of their life. That's life changing. That's sports changing. That's world's changing, and it, it it was a huge thing. And what people don't remember about that, <clears throat> so the other twelve of us were on the undercard. Then Kenny fought uh, Diego. Right. Then Forrest fought Stefan. Yep. Then there was the main event. Yeah, Katora and Shamrock. No, no, versus, oh, yeah, wait, yeah, yeah, you're right. Sorry, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Shamrock and, and Shamrock versus Rich Franklin. Yep, that's right. Yeah. People were getting up and leaving the arena. The viewership went down. Nobody cared. That was technically a much better fight. Yeah, right. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, Shamrock fell back for an ankle lock. Rich fought out of it. I think he ground and pounded him out. Technically, that was a much cleaner fight. Nobody cared. They didn't know Rich. They didn't know Ken. Unless you were a hardcore MMA fan. Nobody cared. Right. So it was the greatest fight because so many people cared about the outcome and they put it all out there for the world to see. And that was really, it it changed the sport. It changed the UFC to be sure. It changed all of our lives. So you win your first two fights, obviously, like like you said, uh, Logan Sincade and Shoney Carter. You win your first two against them. uh, And then you were granted a shot at, UFC, uh, UFC middleweight champion 
uh, Rich Franklin. Uh, you were the first to do that in from the Ultimate Fighter. So take us through that title shot. I mean, you were the first <laughs> Ultimate Fighter to from that show to get a title shot. So tell us about that fight and how that came about, getting your first ever title shot. Well, it was actually my fourth fight in the UFC because my third fight was against Pete Self, who I knocked out with a, uh, a straight left TKO'd him. The referee jumped on me and sandwiched me on top of Pete and called off the fight. Then Pete stood up and he said, this is bullshit. I'm, I'm still good. But the mm-hmm. fight had been stopped. Right. So I got the call to fight Rich. And it was, uh, and it, w- it was overwhelming to say the least to go from somebody who was completely unknown just a few months beforehand to now fighting for the world title in the UFC. And this was, I believe, my fourth fight in seven and a half months in the UFC. So I'm fighting um, every two months or so for this. And at this point, Randy had left Team Quest. I no longer had him as a training partner or as a coach or anything like that. Uh, Matt Lillman wasn't very happy that I was getting a title shot in the UFC and he was denied one. Uh, and it was just kind of a difficult time. And as I get to Las Vegas, so Robert Fallis at this point is my head coach. And let me preface this by saying every loss that I've ever taken, my records 18 and four, all four of those losses are, are due to one thing. I fell short. Mm-hmm. My opponent was better than me, and they beat me, whether it was TKO, submission, knockout, right. or by decision. I lost one out of every four ways that you can lose. Uh, every fight that I won, those 18 fights that I won are because of one thing. I had a great team around me that could mold me into somebody who could win that fight. Right. My losses are my own. My victories are thanks to my team. However, there's always a backstory that goes along with that as well. <clears throat> And a big part of that was me figuring out how I can compete best. Couture fights best when he's relaxed, when there's nothing on the line for him. His wrestling career was over, and now he moved into MMA. This was a second chance for him. And for him, it was, man, this is a, this is a great chance. This is an opportunity. Whenever he got nervous, he would shut down. He wouldn't perform very well. What I, I realized in time I fight best when I'm nervous, when I'm scared. I'll walk through fire. I'll eat that shot just to land that one. We get to Vegas, and it's Tuesday or Wednesday night, and I'm starting to hit mitts with Paulus, and he says, all right, stop. What are we here for? Mm -hmm. I said, I'm here to win the title. He goes, no, we're here to have fun. Let's have a good time. I'm like, oh, okay. And it just changed my whole mindset throughout the week. And as we're walking out to the cage for the fight, I'm laughing and having fun. First time I got hit, I realized, oh, this is not fun. This is not how I perform at my best. I threw a a kick. I slipped on the mat. I got kneed in the face as I was standing up. I was out on my feet at that point. Rich threw a straight left right down the pipe, blasted me. I fell like a tree, and that was the end of my title fight. Uh, If I could change that mindset, if I could go back, who knows? What would happen? But it doesn't really matter. He was better than me on that day. And that's what fighting is all about. Now, I, I, <clears throat> now, according to this, is this true from what I'm seeing? You after that fight, you got you got you got hurt and you didn't come back to the UFC for a year. Right. Uh, am I seeing this correct? Longer than that. So, two, yeah, about uh, yeah, year and a half, two years. Yeah. 
So I got my nose repaired. He, he broke it good enough that I went in and I had a pretty major surgery and had my nose cleaned out and aligned. And they did a pretty good job on it. Uh, but then shortly after that, my lower back started hurting. It turns out I have degenerative disc disease. Mm. So in my lumbar spine, my L2-3 vertebrae had completely collapsed. The disc was gone and grinding on top of each other. Mm. And I went from hopefully fighting for 25 minutes for, for a world title fight to not being able to pick up my little girl. And mm. so I, I looked into getting the surgery. I found this innovative procedure where it was coming in from the left side uh, through the psoas, avoiding the nerves and the blood vessels, a lot less invasive. I ended up getting that surgery six months later because as a fusion, uh, your bones just have to grow together. And so it was like if you break your arm, they put on a cast. Six months later, you're good to go. So as my back grew together, at six months, I was cleared by my doctor to go back in and start training again. 15 months after my surgery, 22 months since the Franklin fight, I was stepped back in the ring for a rematch against Pete Zell. Yep. I was about to ask you that, yeah. About at UFC fight, at, looks like UFC fight night 11 in 2007. Yeah, tell us about that fight. I mean, because obviously you said, you said yourself he was frustrated and he wanted a rematch. It says right here he was your rival, but I don't think he was. I don't think he was your rival, even though that's what this is saying. So tell us about that fight and how that come back about, because obviously he had to complain that he wanted a rematch, and you obviously wanted one too, so how did that come about? Oh, man, I did not want a rematch. Jeez. No. I wanted to fight Caleb Starnes. So as I'm, I'm recovering and I'm getting back in shape, I'm thinking to myself – okay, who's going to be the first guy I can fight and put on a good show and show that I'm back in the mix? Mm -hmm. I want Caleb Starnes. He just beat Chris Lieben. And I said, this is the guy. So I called up Joe Silver, matchmaker from the UFT, said, I want Caleb Starnes. He says, oh, that sounds like a great fight. Let me call Caleb. He calls me back and he says, yeah, Caleb won't fight you. Oh. He says, you're not worthy to fight him. Oh. You just lost your last fight. He won his. He says to get some more wins under your belt, give him a call. Oh. We want you to fight Pete Sell. Oh, shit. And I said, okay, so Pete wants a rematch. He claims it was a quick stoppage. Uh, I've been under back surgery. I left Team Quest. I've been in a custody battle for my daughter. I'm living on my credit card. Uh, things have been really tough in right. Pete's life. He's refocused. He's got Matt Sarah, the world champion at the time, in his corner. All he's been doing is training and fighting. Right. Okay. I'll fight Pete. This is going to be tough, but I'll beat him. And when I do, then I get to fight Caleb Starnes, and I'm going to end his fucking career when I do. <laughs> and so I don't blame you. So I fought Pete Sell. And it was brutal. He beat the hell out of me for two rounds. He dropped me with a big right hand in the second round. And I just remember thinking, this can't end like this. I've worked too hard. I've come too far. Mm. I need to get up. Everything depends on this. And he hit me with a big Superman punch. And you can see me pat myself on the head in the fight after that. And uh, the, the announcer says, oh, he, he's telling him to, to bring it on. I'm like, no, man, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself right at that moment, he just knocked the last bit of ring rust off me. This is exactly how this fight is supposed to go. I'm supposed to take a beating, but now it's my time. Yep. And yep. so when I looked across the ring at the start of the third round, I said, I've got to finish him now. He's clearly up on yep. both both 
rounds. I've got to take him out. So I hit him with a right hand as hard as I could. And when he dropped, I threw another big right hand because he had talked so much trash beforehand. I wanted to make sure there was no doubt in anyone's mind that I won this fight. And nothing against Pete. Now that's part of the game and all that. I saw him after the fight. A big fan of his and admirer of his of all the work that he's done. But that was my night. <clears throat> and that is arguably the most important day in my family's history because that made everything else possible. I secured a big sponsorship, the company that did my back surgery. I became their spokesman for 10 plus years, continued on in the UFC, fought another five times after that. It was, it's, it's an odd thing to be able to look at one day and say, wow, this day went in a different way. I don't know where I'd be. Yeah. Cause I see after that fight, uh, <laughs> then you get to fight. Like you said, you get to fight the, fight the guy that you wanted to fight at UFC 83 you wanted you wanted to like you said end his career because I don't blame you after saying that I mean that 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 talk about being cocky damn <laughs> talk about being cocky yeah then you fight him it, it was unusual because I according to this he backed away from you for almost the entire fight talk about talk about being a chicken shit obviously he, he, he was scared of you, obviously, to back away from most of the fight from what I'm seeing, if this is true. Well, so. I'm never going to disrespect an opponent because it's one of those times when imagine three days out of the year is the most important days out of the year. You spend the other 362 days preparing for those three days, and it's the most stressful personal thing you can possibly do you expose who you are to the world in that cage in a fight mm-hmm. are you the type of person who will fight till you have nothing left or will you tap on your leg as you're running away so i never i never spoke negatively about him or any opponent he just motivated me to make sure that he knew never to to discount me again and the whole the whole thing with with caleb is he's a bully as long as he can move forward, he feels strong and he has motivation. But you get him moving backwards, he just collapses. And I never let him get his rhythm. I just kept going at him the entire 15 minutes. And at the end of the third round is when I did my famous rock hammer, where I covered myself up and just threw an idiot elephant punch at him just to give him a chance to say, look, man, for these last 10 seconds, you can land a shot. You can do whatever you want to do. But he still continued to run away. And then at the end, I gave my Rocky Rocky Four speech. Uh, when I first came out, so we were fighting in Canada. He's a Canadian. So when I came out, you all were booing me. But as the fight went along, you started for cheering for me and booing for him. And I guess if you can change and I can change, anybody can change. That was just the perfect movie quote to, to add into the fight. Yeah, because according to this... Uh, yeah, he he just kept refusing to engage and engage in the fight, and that's how you won by the biggest margin. Well, it says second large, sorry, second largest margin in UFC history, thirty to twenty four. So in a way, you kind of dominated that fight just because he wouldn't engage. <laughs> yeah, every time that I think I, I slip one point, and he tried to jump on me. And- he had some stories about why he didn't perform so well, but it just wasn't his night, and I was able to deliver. And you got your way after he uh, insulted you. I ended his career. <laughs> yes, you did. So at your next fight, you faced the unde- undefeated submission specialist, Damian Maya. Take us through that fight. Oh, man, Damian Maya is such a phenomenal fighter and so great at jiu-jitsu that when he got on me, 
he was moving like a jujitsu fighter. And in jujitsu, so different than MMA because in jujitsu, you're only in danger of submissions. Right. In MMA, you're in danger of getting hit as well as submissions. So he gave me this vibe like, oh, we're just doing jujitsu. And so I kind of calmed down and make sure I was safe. And then all of a sudden he'd hit me with something. And I'd be like, God damn, how did he pull that off? And I'd start scrambling and he'd be like, no, no, no. We're doing jujitsu now. <laughs> and he would just tie me up and shut me down. I'd be like, okay, I'm defending this. I'm defending that. We're good. Whap! Oh, shit. <laughs> and it was just, it was an honor to, to be in the cage with him and, and to take my, my loss from him. I, I can honestly say everybody that ever beat me was good people. So... That would suck if people beat my ass were just total assholes. <laughs> well, I got to ask you then, is there a certain fight that, uh, before I get back into your fights, is there a certain fight that that you would have wanted to have in your career at the time that you would have wanted to fight? <clears throat> uh, I always thought that Michael Bisping would have been a good fight for me. Uh, he, at the time, as we were both coming up, he didn't. He wasn't really known for his punching power, and that's what I was known for. Mm-hmm. I thought that would have been a good one for me to chase down and then try to land some hands on him. Uh, and that was the big one that I saw. Uh, yeah. So um, after you defeat, oh, sorry, after um, yeah, and after you beat him, beat Maya, you give him no, the first... lost to Maya. Oh wait, never mind. Sorry, sorry, you lost. Yeah, my. <laughs> I was reading this the wrong way. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> so That's after all right. so after the loss to him, you your next fight is at UFC ninety seven against another Canadian in Jason McDonald. So how 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 was that fight? And it said right here, you had some brutal brutal ground and pound. So take us through that fight. What happened there? So. Jason McDonald, all he really knew about me was that I've got knockout power and I'm terrible on the ground because I lost to Damian Maya. Like a 102-degree fever, I was throwing up the night before. After I made weight, I puked for like six hours. Mm. It was was not the best of me that day. But I didn't advertise it. I didn't make excuses. And so when I fought Jason McDonald, I knew his game plan was going to be to take me down to the ground because he thought I had nothing on the ground. Right. Well, when I fought Jason, I was healthy. And so when I got on top of him, uh, I've got a, a special kind of ground and pound that I do. Where I, I ride the biceps and I just throw elbows over the top. Mm-hmm. And I got them singing and, and landed some big shots and split him wide open and was able to finish him somewhere around halfway point through the first round. And that was that was a, a big win for me and put me back in the winner's circle after my loss to, to Damian Maya. So... Uh, another question too before we go back to your your next fight so what was your idea as a fighter in the ring was it to go for the knockout submission to what the uh, what the opponent punched himself out what was your method inside the ring when you when you fought for me for the most part my best game plan was just to go in and fight if I started thinking too much, like when I fought Damian Maya, he was a southpaw, and I started thinking too much about I've got to keep my my left foot to the outside of his right foot, and I'm looking down at our feet as he throws a punch and jumps in and takes me down. Mm. For me, it's much better to just kind of go with the flow. I've, I've done this so much that the subconscious takes over. My conscious mind doesn't move that fast. And so, and I see guys like Anderson Silva fight, I'm just in awe 
it, it looks like they're fighting in the matrix, how smooth they are and they're avoiding the punches with me. And maybe some of it's due to my size being a six foot tall, 185 or most of the guys are six, four, right. 72 and a half inch reach. And they've got 80 inch reach. Right. I've got to wade in through those punches, get to the inside to then counter with their, their knees and their elbows and the takedowns and all of this. So for me, the game plan was always just going to go in there and fight. I'm going to hit you as hard as I can. And if we end up on the ground, I'm going to hit you there too, or I'll take a submission if you give it to me and, and just let, let it be what it is. So then your next fight after you fight Jason McDonald ends up being fight at night honors against Tim Quader on UFC fight night. He was a fellow Ultimate Fighter contestant like you are, but on a season seven. Uh, tell us about that fight and what made it the fight of the night honors, because that was your first one from my uh, research. That was your first fight fight of the night honors in your career. Second. My rematch against Pete Sell, I got fight of the night and knockout of the night. So my fight against Tim Crater, I got my second shot at uh, the fight of the night. And it was just, it was a brutal war. Uh, what no one knew that night as well was I had a inflamed nerve in my left leg. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't able to put a lot of weight on my left leg. And now once again, I'm fighting somebody four inches taller than me with reach. And so my game plan here was to go in and out, land my punches, move outside of his range. I just was not able to move like that. And in the first round, he's just lighting me up and dings me, knocks me down, spins around to my back, locks in a choke. And I'm just sitting there going, good God, I can't lose twice to a rear naked choke. Because mm -hmm. Damian Maya had just beat me two fights beforehand. So I fight out of that, get back to our feet. Second round starts. <coughs> and he's using my head like a speed bag. But he makes the mistake of just standing still in front of me as he does it. And I drop him with a big right hand. He stands up and I drop him again. And the third round, same thing, just lighting me up. And I drop him, drop him, drop him. And it was 15 minutes of just nonstop action, getting pummeled and, and beaten on. I'd heard that Tim's jaw was broken and I could barely walk. And I was at the fight ends with him throwing a head kick at me. Oof. It was just, and it's not my most important fight, the pizza rematches, but it's probably my favorite fight where we both really display who we are and, and how much heart we have. And it made me really realize, man. If somebody doesn't want to give up, it's tough to make him do so. And Tim was not going to give up. He just kept coming and coming and coming. Yeah, after that fight, according to this, you turned your record to 7-2 and two and you won four of your last five fights. Now, to me, that would indicate a title shot. How come you didn't get a title shot after that? <laughs> no, I wasn't ready for a title shot there. I just lost to Damian Maya. I just had two wins that weren't overly dominating uh, type of thing, at least with Tim Crater. So, and having gotten my title fight in the past, and the UFC, they're they're really trying to build the young up and comers so they can have a champion that lasts for a long time. So at this point, I'm more in the journeyman status, gotcha. where I put on good fights. It's going to be exciting. You know, it's going to be a war if I step into the cage. So now, tell me about this. This ultimately ended up being your last fight in the UFC. Did you know it was going to be your last fight going in? against fellow veteran Jorge Rivera. Did you know that that was going to be your final fight at UFC Fight Night 21? 
Uh, I hadn't made up my mind, but I was kind of leaning in that direction. Uh, I just kind of lost the flavor for it. When I first started fighting, it was a way for me to get out the, the anger issues that I had as a kid, not, not being able to live my life like I wanted to. And now after was that my 22nd fight, as I stepped into the cage, I remember thinking to myself, you know what, win or lose, we're good. We have food, money. We have a home. I'm just mm -hmm. not as angry as I used to be. Mm -hmm. But I went out and I put on the best performance that I could. <clears throat> Jorge, just such a bad matchup for me. Taller than me, great boxing skills. My key to victory would be the takedown, pushing him into later rounds. But I just don't have those takedown skills against somebody like him. He landed a big right hand, doubled it up, and just shattered the whole left side of my face. And this was what kind of brings my career to completely around. Because when I first started fighting, I wanted to know, am I the kind of guy that will fight till I have nothing left? Or mm -hmm. will I run away mm -hmm. uh, afraid? And it, it took quite a few fights before I even got tested to find out what kind of a man I was. And now here I am in this 22nd fight, 12 years later from that first step into the ring. And they, the first round ends and I'm sitting on my stool. <clears throat> Blood is pouring out of my nose and my mouth and Stitch Duran is, is swabbing my nose. Well, he always drops a rag, droops a rag in front of my mouth while he's swabbing my nose. And I can never breathe when he's doing that. So I'm pushing the rag away. Mm -hmm. He says, brother, you got to let me work here. You got to let me work on, on your nose. Your nose is broken. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment of clarity where I just said, man, you have no idea. My nose is broken. My septum is broken. My cheekbone was broken. I could move my cheekbone around my face. It was broken so badly. And then this little voice inside my head said, man, you should quit. Nobody is going to fault you when they see the x-rays, when they see how much damage you've taken. Right. And then this big booming voice came over the top and said, if you quit on your stool, potentially end your career on your stool, you will consider yourself a coward until the day you die. And there's no getting over that. They'll fix you. They'll put your face back together. In a year, you won't even be thinking about it. But you'll never forget quitting on your stool. Get your ass up. You're a fighter. You're going to fight. You're either going to win this or he's going to knock you out. One of those two things is going to happen. Now do your fucking job. Now and I got up. And I got TKO'd about 45 seconds into the, the second round. And <clears throat> my toe was dislocated. My face was, was shattered. All of these things happened. But now here I am. My face still has some nerve damage. But overall, it's fine. Toe went right back into place. And I can honestly say, throughout all my fights, no one ever broke my heart. They may have beaten my body, but they never broke my will. And to me, as a man, as a human being, that's one of the questions we should all be asking ourselves. Because you see this bravado out at the bars or out someplace where somebody has to sh make sure everybody knows how tough they are. Yeah. I don't need to show that. Yeah. I know how tough I am. Yeah. I don't need to prove it to anybody. I've proved it to myself. And if people had that inner confidence, the world would be a much better place because they're not going to be walking around trying to prove to themselves, make sure everybody knows how tough they are. Yeah, now seeing now how that ended up being your final fight, I got to ask you this. Obviously, you didn't want it to be, but you knew it kind of was. Do you think, because I've seen this happen before with fighters, veteran fighters like yourself. Uh, look at what happened with Rich Franklin. He took fight too many, and he ended up getting his ass knocked out. He took a fight when he shouldn't have. Um, Chuck Liddell, same thing. I mean, you see with these veteran fighters, they take a final fight, 
even though they don't know it's going to be their final fight because they still want to continue on, I mean, is that how, like, you might, is that how you saw it, like, going into your final fight? I mean, you didn't want it to be your final fight, but you kind of knew you took a fight way too many that your your end of your career was right there in front of you, that you should have retired Well, before the fight? I, I think in combat sports especially, above everything else, you have to decide when to leave the dance. Because if you don't, you get chewed up and spit out. I wanted to be the guy people were saying, oh, man, we loved your fights. We wish you would come back and fight some more, rather than the guy people were saying, wow, he should have quit a few fights ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like Muhammad Ali, he lost the guys he never should have lost to. Right. And and the brain damage that he took because of it. It's It's a difficult thing for people to get through because you have to come to terms with, I'm getting older. I'm not as good as I used to be. I will never be a world champion. When I go to work, there's not going to be 30,000 people screaming my name. I'm going to have a quiet life again. I have to be okay with that and move on to something else. You have to accept that. And I've seen fighters that they just hang on to it too long. And you just want to go up and give them a hug and go, no, man, you're good. You've done enough. You can move on to something else. But their entire identity is on being that tough guy, on being that fighter. And that's not my identity. My identity is who I am as a man holistically. And being a fighter is just one of those things. It's a big part, but it's not something I feel I need to show to the world on a daily basis. So in your career, what would you have liked to accomplish? Would you have liked to accomplish more... uh, Obviously, more t- uh, title shots. Obviously, and you would like to win a title. Obviously, but would you have liked to have like earned more money, like getting like fight of the night honors? What would everybody what would wants been, more money? Of course. Yeah. What would have been your ultimate goal? Uh, yeah. In all honesty, my life is so much better than I ever could have imagined it that I can't. I don't know. I. I I found a sheet a while back where I had written down my goals from something like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And every single one of those goals came true to the point where I wish I would have set my, my sights a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. But seeing my father die at 62, going with him to to pick up his final paycheck, and mm-hmm. then seeing him die three weeks later, it made me really at, at the age of 30 decide I'm going to take my shot. And what's the worst case? I, I fail miserably. And then I've got to start over again. I can do that. I've been knocked out in front of millions of people. There's not much more that can happen to me that would be more embarrassing than that. And once you get through those things and you become comfortable with who you are, that's all good. So as far as my career goes, <clears throat> of course, if I could write down, yeah, he wins the title or, or, or fights into the fourth or fifth round for the title, puts on a great display. Yeah, that would have been awesome. But I've got the poster right there. I fought for the world title. Yeah. And as a guy who started training at 24 and 11 years later was fighting for the world title, that's not bad. And I feel like I've changed the trajectory of my family's future. I am the trunk of my family tree. So I've got nothing to complain about. So tell us about this. You you then, you first retire, then you go to be a host at the time of Spike TV, MMA Uncensored Live. You leave that to do then you come out of retirement again for one last fight in an exhibition against a 19 year old jacob backman 
how what, what what was the concept of that did you felt like you had to take it what what concept of how did that come about well there was a young man who had been training mma for quite a while and he was told that he was never going to be able to fight no matter how much he wanted to because he has down syndrome and from my perspective i don't do so good when people tell me what my life can and can't be mm-hmm. and so for that one night i wanted him to live his dream and for his mother to live her dream of seeing her son follow his dreams so i stepped into the cage and put on a good show he caught me with an ankle lock in the second round so it wasn't my night but it was the night that i was able to to let that young man live his dream and if, if that's what i can do to help pay forward all the, the the benefits that i've had then so be it now i'm going to talk about tell me if this this is true i'm i'm, I'm from what i'm seeing uh you're featured i don't play the game personally but you're featured in a video game called left for dead as a guest zombie what is the whole concept of that how did you get that gig so the ufc started putting out their own ufc game and i was told i was going to be in the first uh season or first episode of the game first version of the game so i did all these photo shoots i got all my sponsors to sign up all this kind of stuff then the ufc kicked me out of the game and kept all my sponsors so i'm friends and i had a sponsor at valve uh software who makes this game left for dead left for dead 2 so he says that's bullshit i'm gonna put you in our game so he put me in as a zombie. So if you played Left 4 Dead 2, you've probably killed me thousands of times. I never played the game, so I don't I don't even know what it's awesome. about. Oh, so That's you great. played it? You played it? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even get a free copy. I had to go out and buy my own. Oh, jeez. Oh, come <laughs> on. The least they could have done was give you a free copy. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> so then after that, you, you tell us about this. You create a comic book named Zombie Cage Fighter. What is that? So everyone had been bugging me to do a, a biographical story of my life, but I'm an old school nerd, man. I, I grew up reading comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my escape, the Star Wars world, the Marvel world. And so when I started writing my story, I wanted to do it with a little bit of, a bit of flair. So I took my life, what I'd been through as a fighter and as a single father at the time, and then I threw in zombies. And that became Zombie Cage Fighter. I launched the first issue issue zero back in 2012 at san diego Mm comic-con and really i just wanted to see if anybody else thought that this story was cool and the big complaint that i got was well when's the next issue coming out so it took quite a few years 10 or so almost 10 but we have the entire comic book done in a graphic novel it's available at zombiecagefighter.com and i would tell you if it wasn't good I'm that kind of guy, but it is awesome. The artwork is phenomenal. The cover by Alex Horley is an actual painting of myself fighting a zombie. But you take away the MMA, you take away the zombies, and what the story is, it's of a father trying to provide a better life for his little girl. Right. And that was my story all along. Maybe you should give, so me, maybe I, you should give me a signed copy and I'll put it up on my wall. There you go. <laughs> Zombiecagefighter.com, you know where to get it, my friend. <laughs> so now, then after that, shortly after that, from what I'm seeing, you were interviewed in a 2013 documentary, Truth Be Told, where you discuss your sheltered upbringing. Now tell tell us how did, how did that come about or who reached out to you for that? Well, I got a, approached by this filmmaker, Gregorio Smith, that 
uh, he was raised as a Jehovah's Witness as well. And he wanted to kind of share our stories to kind of expose it to the world what our lives were like. And if anyone knows, if you're trying to become famous or do something in the public eye, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, because you're immediately going to alienate at least half of the population. Right. But I said, no, this is important to me. I want people to understand how abusive and manipulative this cult is. And so I went ahead and did the documentary and shared what my experiences had been. And it was it was tough to, to relive and go through, but it's it's been it, it's it's reached a lot of people, and I feel it's done some good. Now you can you can t- tell me anything about this you want. It's up to you. I, I I just I see it, so I gotta ask it. I I think somebody else I had asked before on this, um, because they were a part of it. In December sixteenth of fourteen, you and you and two other fighters, um, filed a class action lawsuit against Zufa. Uh, is that lawsuit settled now? And what was the what was the point behind that lawsuit? No, we're about close to eight years in for all of this. And what we're saying is that the UFC has manipulated the market and underpaid the fighters and monopolized the sport of MMA. Mm-hmm. They've monopsonized, meaning that they're the only buyers out there. They they dictate the entire sport worldwide. Mm-hmm. And worldwide, they make about 90 95% of every dollar spent. And so we're fighting to get what we believe is a free market that will then allow the free market to dictate our our pay, our value. And that goes hand in hand with the Muhammad Ali Act, the Ali Act, the Ali Expansion Act Mm. is what we call it, where boxers are protected from shady promoters. Well, we don't have that in MMA. Mm -hmm. So we're working to get that bill passed. We had 62 signers on the bill, and then Donald Trump took office and killed our bill because he's friends with Dana White. Right. And all we're saying here is, you know, in boxing, boxers get about 85% of every dollar. The boxers on that card do. In MMA, in the UFC specifically, the fighters get about 15% of that money. 85% of it go to the billionaire owners. So we just want the freedom to be able to test the open market. A perfect example of this is, Mark Cuban tried to put on a show with Fedor and Randy Couture to see who was that. the best yep. heavyweight. I remember hearing about that. Yep. I remember And that. the UFC said, no, Randy's under under contract with us. We're not going to let him fight. And we're going to take him to court until he's too old to continue fighting and his career is over. That's the stranglehold that they have on the sport and the fighters. If Mark Cuban, one of the richest men alive, can't make one of the most wanted fights happen, what hope to the rest of us have? Hell, I would want to see that fight. I don't care how old they are. I'd still want to see that fight because Couture's still in good shape. And I've seen Fedor out there at other organizations. He mm-hmm. he's, he still looks like he's in top shape. So I don't. I would love to see that fight. Well, and that's that's the struggle. So we need to have the sport open up to where if the UFC still wants to be the top dog, that's great. They just need to bid for the fighters and pay us our our wage that we deserve. And every sport has gone through this. Every industry has gone through this. We just have such a short memory. If we didn't see it, we don't know about it. Uh, the five-day work week, overtime, paid holidays, safety conditions, people fought for that. 
because the people in control, they're winning the game. They're not going to change the rules. Right. Dana White just today, I think, put out a, a, another statement, of course, boxing is dead. Those guys, they just show up for paydays. He has said in interviews he underpays his fighters so that they'll show up starving and fight against their own best interest, against anyone he wants them to. He's just he's morally corrupt, and it's time for us fighters to come together and change the sport because he's not going to. Why would they? They're winning the game. They're not going to change the rules. Now, do you think? Do you think it's because Dana White just doesn't care about you guys at all? I mean, with like exactly with the six. I'm guessing you're also referring to the six-figure contracts, which you guys don't get paid much. I'm guessing that's what you're also referring to as well. Well, a six-figure so. contract, let's look at that. That sounds really cool. Right. Six-figure no, contract. I, no, I Over yes, three years, that's yeah. $33,000 a year. Right. I was literally making more hanging signs than I was fighting for the UFC. Right. right. I would have made more in construction than fighting for the UFC. The only thing that saved me was the sponsors. And then the UFC killed all the sponsors. Now you're only allowed to have, I think it's a Venom now. I, I was making more 12 years ago in an undercard fight than, than what the they champions are now. Are yeah. now. Than, than what the they champions are now. in a title fight. So it's it again. It's just time to change, and and that's the way industry is. That's the late stage capitalism, where you have enough money that you can buy off the politicians to make sure that they're not going to change the rules. Uh, look at a Jeff Bezos. Does he hate his workers? Well, he sure doesn't love them. He doesn't respect them. He doesn't credit them for anything. One of the richest people on the planet. He's doing everything he can to crush their union to not have to provide them with health care. Right. It's it's soulless and immoral and it amazes me that anyone would side with them so ultimately i gotta ask you do you think it's going to go any further do you think it's going to go to the supreme court and win or do you think it's you think you guys will ultimately win of course of course we're going to win we have the same we have all the evidence that boxing needed Uh, we're just waiting on the judge right now to give us his written statement on class action status and once that happens, that's going to change everything because uh, we estimate our damages are somewhere in $800 million. Ooh. Those damages get tripled. So $2.4 billion. And they filed a new lawsuit from the ending point of ours moving forward because they haven't changed their business practices. They're doing the same thing. So, again, it's just time for us to step up and change the sport, just like what happened in the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. And I, I, I wish you guys honestly the best of luck because, like I said, I had a fighter, I forget his name, um, but I think he was one that went with you in it, um, who started it. But I hope it goes well for you guys because I, I, as a fan, I see it too. I mean, and talking to you guys that I have so far with the ones I have interviewed, it does need to change. It is, it, the sport needs to change. It. It just doesn't. It just feels, it feels. Maybe that's why I don't really watch it that much anymore. I mean, not not just the. I don't know hardly any fighters anymore. They're all pretty much retired. But also, in a way, it's because of that too. Because I'm not. I'm not stupid. I know about talking with you guys, and plus seeing it, like Dana White just. I, I and how snarky is in his interviews, like. It just seems like he don't give a shit about you guys. Well, he treats all. the workers like we're the enemy. Yeah. Which is just amazing so. to me. It, 
he is famous for tipping waiters ten thousand dollars yeah it's better yeah. for you in a career to go out and serve dana white drinks than it is to fight for him you can make more money doing that exactly and, and i've heard that bizarre. too yep i've heard that <laughs> that's too just about that's pathological i've heard that too i wish you the best of luck in that one um Thank but you. also since i am here in since i am here in dunedin close to clearwater which is home home one of the biggest scientology places around you were offered how did this come about with leah remy a well-known actress who was in scientology forever did she reach out to you or how how that process come about to where you were on that show because me and the wife watched a few episodes of that well my old coach at team quest robert follows he was raised the same way that i was as one of jehovah's witnesses and so we immediately created a kinship based on that but being raised that way comes with a lot of demons and he committed suicide four or five years ago Mm -hmm. and it was so shocking for the community how could this successful coach at organist stream go toward now at this time commit suicide and so i wanted the world to see what the backstory was how he was raised as one of jehovah's witnesses how he was disowned by his family how he was never taught unconditional love those things do a lot of damage to you so I wanted to open people's eyes and explain from my perspective what had happened. So I reached out to Lee Remini's people and we were able to be a part of this show and I think really change people's perspective on what the Jehovah's Witnesses are. It really did because, like I said, me and the wife have seen a couple episodes of that and it's amazing what what you guys went through with having to be away from family and them using you, them killing you if you don't see their views. I mean... <laughs> it's brutal that lifestyle so i mean uh, it's just have you had any backlash or whatever from them come i know i know those guys were protected in doing it especially they had to film it here in clearwater when they filmed it i know they had to have security by them 24 7 in fear that they were going to get killed i mean did you have that fear when you took it when you took upon that no role? i don't worry about things like that if somebody's coming for me, they better come hard. <laughs> Especially Jehovah's Witnesses. It's no, it, it, I came to peace with being disowned by my family a long time ago. It is what it is, and I'm living my best life. And they're much worse off without me than I am without them. So, a couple more questions before I let you go. I know we went over. All right, you got to hurry because I got my kids waiting for dinner here. Yeah, I know, and, I, and I'm got to play my game. With, I got to play the video game with my wife before we go to bed. So, yeah, let's go here. We'll go. To, we'll do a couple. Uh, current UFC questions um, out of the current fights I'm sure you still keep up with it even though I'm very little alright uh, is there any fight that you would like to see that hasn't already happened that you would like to see nothing really comes to mind I just don't follow the sport as much as I used to most of my training now is in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and uh, yeah I'm just I've got a two year old and a five month old I'm chasing around all the time and that takes up most of my time plus there's some awesome marvel content coming out it seems like every day so i've got to keep up on my star wars and my marvel that's true there is i mean it is every single time there is you're right you're right um and then the final one i asked this to everybody uh two-part question i know you've already answered the first part um the about about your career and what you would in one word you've already described your career and that so i'm not going to ask that the the other part is if you were a coach 
I know that's not in your league right now because obviously you got two young kids. But if you were a coach, what would you tell the kids that want to be ultimately where you were in the UFC? The number one piece of advice I give to every up-and-coming fighter is you have to treat this like a business. Do it because you love the sport. It's too hard otherwise. But if you don't treat it like a business, at the end of the day, you're going to leave broken, broken. Because everyone around you is thinking about the dollar. Your coaches, that's how they pay their bills. The training partners, to some extent, especially the promoters, they don't care about you. They will try to get you to to fight Godzilla in Japan on a day's notice. You have to make smart business decisions. And when they come at you with, oh, I guess you're too afraid to take the fight. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's why I fought all these other times because I'm too afraid. Right. No, in reality, I'm I'm not afraid to fight anybody, but I'm going to treat this like a business. I think about John Jones and Chael Sonnen. They wanted him to fight. Uh, <clears throat> Jones's opponent dropped out of the last minute, and they wanted Chael to come in as last-minute replacement. And Jones said no. Yeah. Like, no, I, I'm not prepared for a Chael. I've had a completely different fight camp. And everyone called him every name you I can imagine. That. Yep, but he I was too that. scared to fight Chael, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> At the end of the day, he said, no, I'll fight him with a full camp. And he did, and he beat Chael in the first round. And what did that mean? If he would have lost by some random means, he would have lost half his year's income, would have lost his sponsors, would have lost the title. But instead, he treated it like a business. He had his camp. He doubled his purse by getting his show money, his win money, got all of his sponsors, remained champion, which meant more money, more pay-per-view points, all that kind of stuff. Don't be sucked in. It is a business. Everyone around you is treating it as such. Don't get played by your emotions. So, off, uh, so then now that you mentioned that, so then now I got to ask you back to the lawsuit again. And do you see with the, this going on with the UFC, the, the these other leagues that are out there like Professional Fight League and One, do you see them taking over the UFC? So not taking over, but surpassing them because of this lawsuit that's against them because everybody knows about it. Everybody knows about it. It's it's public. Well, when we win in the court of law and we pass the Ali Act, the Ali Expansion Act, then the playing field will be leveled. Then the PFL, the Bellator, whoever, the Mark Cuban can show up and say, we want to bid on this title fight. <clears throat> You're getting 15%. We'll give you 20, 30, 40, 50%. It will get up to where the free market exists and you're going to find some promoters that are like, we'll take 15% of the gross. You take 85% just like in boxing. That's what it comes down to. And again, the UFC can be that top dog. They're just so greedy and it's in their business model to underpay fighters so they can make as much money as possible. It's it's that simple. I couldn't have said anything better. I hope, again, like I said, I hope you win it. I thank you for this time being the 100th episode. So I I appreciate it. I'm going to stay in touch with you. And if you know any fighters still still around, if you still talk to anybody, I'm always looking for more interviews. Hand hand in my contact info, and I'll have them on as well. So I I appreciate it. It was fun. Okay, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you t- you have a good night. All right. All right, my man. Have have fun Peace. with the kids. You they, they're young. They're young only so long. <laughs> True that. Have a good night.
So this concludes episode 100 with Nate the Rock Corey. Thank you all for joining us. It was fun. Um, talking to some UFC, talking his career, talking a lawsuit. It was fun. I couldn't ask for a better 100 episode. Uh, God, I can't believe it's that long, but oh well. It's gone past, um, but you all have a good night. Uh, tune in on Spotify, Google, Anchor, all them podcasting apps, even um, Alexa, where you say Coffee Time with Byron and it'll pop up. So again, you all have a good night. Uh, thanks for joining us on episode 100 with Nate the Rock Corey. Until then, take care. Did you finally get past it? <laughs>